As Jude closes his pastoral letter to the scattered and suffering saints, he leaves them with three charges. In verses 17 through 19, Jude charged the beloved to remember the words of the apostles and the works of the false teachers. Then in verse 20 and 21, Jude charged the beloved to remain in God's love. And now in verses 22 and 23, Jude charges the beloved to show mercy. In particular, believers, you and I, are to show mercy to our fellow believers. And so Jude 22 and 23 is a charge to show mercy. A charge to show mercy. Now, within this final charge, Jude provides a 15th triad, which shows three groups of believers needing mercy. Each of these groups are introduced by the term has in the Greek text. Twice it is translated as some, and one time as others. So the first group of believers needing mercy are those struggling with doubt. The second group of believers needing mercy are those influenced by false teaching. And the third group of believers needing mercy are those spreading false doctrine. Now, before we dive into the text, let's take a moment and just recap the 15 triads here in the epistle of Jude. First, we had three actions of God in verse 1. He called us, loved us, kept us. In verse 2, we have three blessings upon the saints. We've received mercy, peace, and love. In verse 4, we have three charges against false teachers. They've crept in unaware, turned grace into licentiousness, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 5 through 7, Jude gave us three examples of judgment in the past. Israel in the wilderness, the fallen angels in Genesis 6, and Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 8, he gives us three more charges against false teachers. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they revile angels. In verse 11, he gives us three examples of wickedness from the past, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. We are given in verse 12 three descriptions of false teachers. They're hidden reefs, selfish shepherds, and waterless clouds. We have three more descriptions of false teachers in verse 13. They're autumn trees, wild waves, and wandering stars. In verse 15, he gives us three reasons for the second coming of Christ. To execute judgment on all, to convict the ungodly of their works, and to convict the ungodly of their words. In verse, 10, or verse 16, rather, we have our tenth triad, three more charges against the false teachers. They complain and grumble, they follow their lust, and they speak arrogant and flattering words. Verse 19, we have three more charges against false teachers. They cause divisions, they're worldly-minded, and they're devoid of the Spirit. In verse 20 and 21, there were actually three sets of triads. The twelfth uh, triad, was we were given three works of the Trinity. We have the Father's work of watchful care, the Holy Spirit's work of illumination, and the Son's work of mercy at the rapture. We also had number the thirteenth triad, three ways to remain in God's love, verse 20 and 21. Build yourself up in faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, and wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were also saw three lasting virtues in verse 21, and, or 20 and 21, and that was faith, love, and Hope we're waiting anxiously. And now we have the 15th triad, verse 22 and 23, three believers needing mercy. Believers struggling with doubts, believers influenced by false doctrine, and yes, even believers spreading false doctrine. Now in this final charge, the term mercy, Iliach, 
means to show leniency and compassion towards someone. Mercy means attempting to persuade those who are struggling with doubts and those influenced by or spreading false teaching to resist false teaching and return to biblical orthodoxy. As well, the term mercy is in the imperative mood, denoting that this charge is not optional. And it's interesting here that Jude noted that believers have received mercy from God, verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, and are also waiting or hoping for the mercy of Jesus Christ, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And so just as you and I have received and will receive mercy from on high, so too we must show mercy to one another. Luke 6.36 Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Luke 10.37 And he said, the one who showed mercy towards him, and then Jesus said, go and do the same. Believer, we must show mercy to other believers, especially those struggling with doubt, those influenced by false doctrine, and those spreading false doctrine. They need mercy. It is critical to drive home the point that these individuals have not deserted the faith. But they are in a dangerous position. They need others, they need you and me, to reach out to them in mercy and rescue them before they perish. You know, sadly, too often, the response to such believers is to condemn and shun them. Judgment is not the response that God requires for these believers. Now, certainly, those determined to be unregenerate false teachers should be judged, condemned, and shunned. However, those who have been deceived by false teachers need to be rescued and restored. That is our duty. So as we begin here in the text, in verse 22, it says, And have mercy on some who are doubting. So first, the first part of this charge, the charge to show mercy, is to have mercy on believers struggling with doubt. Now before we dig into the meat of verse 22, the translation of the verse needs to be established. Some English versions translate verse 22 to read, of some have compassion, making a difference. Or, on some have compassion, making a distinction. Or, to some be kind, judging thoroughly. Other versions translate verse 22 to read, have mercy on some who are doubting, or have mercy on those who doubt, or have mercy on those who are wavering. The question then is, does the text mean to be merciful and make a difference, or to be merciful and judge thoroughly, or does it mean to be merciful to those who are doubting? Now the choice of translation comes down to how the translators handled the Greek verb diakrino which we translate as doubting. 
One group of Greek manuscripts uses the nominative participle form of the verb, which translates as making a distinction or judging thoroughly. The other group of Greek manuscripts uses the accusative participle form of the verb, which translates as doubting or wavering. Now, after careful study and consideration of these manuscripts, it can be stated assuredly that the accusative form of diacrino best represents the original text. Hence, the phrase should be translated as doubting. And those manuscripts using the nominative form of diacrino represent a scribal change, which was likely made to parallel the other two nominative participles in the text, snatching and hating. Therefore, with that established, the first group of believers who need mercy or compassion are those struggling with doubt. Notice the term some, has. It identifies that not all believers are doubting, but some are. The verb doubting, diacrino, denotes uncertainty or disputing. Now back in verse 9, the verb diacrino was rendered as disputed. Michael the archangel disputed with the devil. However, here in verse 22, the verb is in the middle voice, implying that the individual is disputing with himself or herself. Hence, the verse properly translated as doubting, denoting the individual themselves is struggling with uncertainty. As James 1.6 says, that those who struggle with doubt are like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Now, in particular, these believers are uncertain about what they believe. They're hesitating. They're wavering in the faith. That is biblical orthodoxy. The false teachers have filled their minds with questions for which they do not have answers. And they're beginning to rethink what they believe. 2 Peter 1.18 for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensualities, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. See, these struggling believers who are asking questions are looking for answers. Now, it's easy to dismiss or lose patience with those struggling with doubts and questions. However, when we are confronted with questions, we are divinely obligated believer to answer those questions, not with sarcasm, not with spite, but with mercy. You know, when, it, when another believer asks a question to you, how do you respond? Do you respond with sarcasm? Do you respond with spite? Or do you respond with mercy? See, these fellow believers who are struggling with the truths of Scripture, need their questions answered in a manner that will help them to mature in their spiritual growth. Help them mature or become grounded in the faith once delivered. Now, believer, you would do well to remember Peter's admonition in 1 Peter 3.15. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. 
That phrase, always be ready, in 1 Peter 3.15, means to be holy and regularly prepared to do something. To make a defense, apologia, is to make a verbal, reasoned defense to prove what you believe. In fact, the term apologetics is derived from the Greek term apologia. And to everyone who asks, envisions making a defense to a wide variety of people, including other believers. Now, in the first century A.D., such a defense made Christianity markedly different from the surrounding pagan religions, which required secrecy of their beliefs. And therefore, believer, you and I must be holy and regularly prepared to provide a reasonable defense for what we believe to all who ask. Now that is not to say that every one of you are going to be doctorate level apologists. However, it does mean that all of us must grasp the essential of biblical orthodoxy and the ability to explain why these essentials are true. We must consider whether or not we have a grasp on orthodoxy and the ability to answer what we believe. Do you have that grasp? Do you have that ability to provide answers to what you believe? And friend, I got news for you. There is no room for claiming that biblical doctrine is above your pay grade. If a believer, or anybody else for that matter, but if a believer comes to you and they don't understand something, they ask you a question, you have a responsibility to get that answer. And if you don't know the answer, it's incumbent upon you, believer, to find that answer. Now notice this. How we make a defense, according to 1 Peter 3.15, is with gentleness and reverence. That term gentleness conveys the idea of courtesy and compassion. Gentleness is also not being impressed with your own self-importance. The term reverence, phobos, implies that we're to provide these answers with that courtesy and compassion while defending what we believe. See, there's no room for arrogance, aggressiveness, or acrimony. As well, such a defense is to be conducted out of reverence for God. God is witness. And believer, you and I will be held more responsible to Him for our defense than to those to whom we present our defense or answers. Now, answering those with doubts or correcting those in error must be done mercifully. That is, courteously and compassionately. Friend, if not for the grace of God, you may be the one needing correction. You may be the one with questions. And so by courteously and compassionately correcting those in error, answering those with doubts, they may come to repentance, they might come to their senses, and they might escape the devil's snare. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
24-26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, apt to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Notice, believer, that we are to not be quarrelsome, but kind and patient, even when wronged. See, believer, you and I, when we have to answer those who have questions, those who are doubting, we're not supposed to be looking to pick a fight with them, but to be merciful towards them. Now, the second group of believers who need mercy or compassion are those influenced by false teaching. Where the charge to show mercy is, means to have mercy on believers influenced by false teaching. Let's look at the first part of verse 23. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. Now notice the term others, has. Same term translated as some back in verse 22. It identifies another group of believers distinct from the first group. This second group of believers has gone beyond struggling with doubts. They are now being influenced by false teaching, perhaps even beginning to embrace the lifestyle of false teachers. And that they are being influenced by false teaching is underscored by the fact that they need snatching out of the fire. Let's talk about that term fire. The term fire, pure, refers to divine judgment. Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. Previously, Jude used the term in verse 7 to describe hell, the punishment of eternal fire. Peter used the term fire in 1 Peter 1, 7 to depict the means God uses to test the or prove a believer's faith. Test it by fire. Peter also used the term fire in 2 Peter 3, 7 to describe how God will destroy the present heavens and earth, which are, quote, being reserved for fire. Now, since believers are the subject of verse 22 and 23, we can affirm that Jude is not speaking about the judgment of hell. However, there is no doubt that he is pronouncing divine judgment or chastening upon believers who are influenced by false teaching. The phrase, snatching them out of the fire, is an allusion to Zechariah chapter 3. In Zechariah 3 verse 2, Yahweh confronts Satan and defends Joshua the high priest. He says of Joshua the high priest, Is this not a brand plucked from the fire, snatched from the fire? Joshua was doomed to the fire of judgment because of his filthy garments of sin. Zechariah 3.3 3. Now Joshua is clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angels. Joshua, however, repented of his sins. And God in turn removed the filthy garments from him and has taken his iniquity away from him. Zechariah 3.4 And so in the same manner in which Joshua was snatched from the fiery judgment by God's mercy, believers, you and I, motivated by mercy, will save other believers who are influenced by false doctrine by snatching them out of the fire. 
Thus this fire is the judgment that is about to fall those weak in the faith. Now the verb save, zozo, does not refer to salvation here. It's not salvation from sin, death, or hell. After all, these individuals are believers. Instead, it means to free or rescue someone from harm. And in this case, the harm is being influenced by false doctrine, which will result in God's judgment or chastening. And so out of mercy, we are to rescue our brother and sisters who are under the influence of false doctrine. Now notice the participle snatching, harpazo. It means to drag away or take by force. It pictures someone doing whatever it takes to rescue someone in danger of being burned by fire. Therefore, believer, you and I need to do whatever it takes within the framework of Scripture to rescue those believers being influenced by false teaching. And by the way, that these believers can be freed from the influence of false teaching means there is hope for restoring them. James 5, 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude a multitude, a multitude of sins. There needs to be more rescuing of believers who are being influenced by the many false teachers of our day. And as those who struggle with doubts, these believers influenced by false teachers must be restored in a spirit of gentleness. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Believers, we must rescue those believers who are being influenced by false doctrine. We cannot simply ignore them or condemn them. What are you going to do to rescue a fellow believer from false teaching. Now as we return to verse 23, the second part of the verse says, And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So the third group of believers who need mercy or compassion are those spreading false teaching. So we're not only to have mercy on those who are doubting, not only to have mercy on those influenced by false teaching, but now to have mercy on believers who are even spreading false teaching. Again, note the term some. Huh? Some believers struggle with doubt. Others are being influenced by false teaching. And some are actually spreading the false teaching. These are genuine believers who struggle with doubt, influenced by false teaching. And now finally... Genuine believers who are spreading false teaching. These individuals are not, I'll say it again, are not apostates or false teachers. Again, notice here that we are to have mercy even upon believers spreading false teaching. But note that this mercy must be guarded with fear. The term fear, phobos, 
which is often translated as reverence or caution. And so, what are we to fear in showing mercy? First, we need to fear God's holiness. 1 Peter 1, 15-17 Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you address as the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. See, believers, we are to be holy and therefore to conduct our lives in the fear of God's holiness. And because God is holy, there needs to be caution so as not to become entangled with that which is unholy, which would be false teaching. And second, we need to fear the coming judgment of God. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, since we received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an accountable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, we are to show mercy to believers spreading false teaching, but we must do it with caution. And the need for caution is clarified by the statement, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. The verb polluted, spalao, refers to something which has been soiled or discolored. That which has soiled these garments is the flesh. And Jude uses this term flesh, sarks, to describe the carnal or sinful desires of an individual. Galatians 5, 16, 17, and 19 to 21. Galatians 5, 16 to 17, and 19 to 21. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of angers, disputes, dissension, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. There's a definition of the flesh. That these believers are clothed in garments polluted by the flesh indicates that they are engaging in the sins of the false teachers. That is, those deeds referenced in Galatians 5, 19-21. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envies, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And yet, and praise God for this, they are not beyond mercy. Now again, this reference to the garments polluted by the flesh is another allusion to Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3, 3 and 4 states that, quote, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and Yahweh said, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and will clothe you with festal robes. That Hebrew term, filthy, refers to human excrement. Deuteronomy 23.13 
and you shall have a spade among your tools, and it shall be when you sit down, you shall dig with it, and shall turn to cover up your excrement. Proverbs 30, verse 12. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet he is not washed from his filthiness, his dung, his excrement. Isaiah 28, 8. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit, excrement, and vomit, without a single clean place. Ezekiel 4.12 You shall not eat it as a barley cake, having baked it in their sight over human dung, or excrement. And the garment, the chaton, refers to the inner tunic worn against the body. And therefore a filthy garment refers to the inner tunic stained with human excrement. And in the context of Zechariah 3, the phrase filthy garments were a picture of Joshua's sin or iniquity. Again, he spoke to him and said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And then he says, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you. So Jude uses a very graphic picture of a tunic or an undergarment that bodily discharges have soiled to describe the filthiness of our sin and our immorality. Jude says that we are to be hating such garments. And that verb hating, maseo, means to loathe, to detest, to abhor. And when Jude says to loathe or detest filthy garments, he has the laws of purity in view. Now according to the purity law, an individual could become defiled by being in contact with something unclean. The purity laws are based upon the holiness of God. Leviticus 19.2 Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Because God is holy and has declared his people to be holy, he has deemed certain things as unclean or impure. And some things deemed impure were related to medical issues, such as bodily emissions and dead bodies. Some dealt with issues of cleanliness, such as the eating of inedible animals. And others dealt with things that were associated with the surrounding pagan cultures. Now during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus stated that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. That is, to bring it to its complete purpose and original intent. Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Thus, when it comes to the laws of purity, Jesus stated that the purpose and intent of the purity laws were to be instructive. They taught that while bodily emissions and dead bodies and inedible animals and other pagan rituals can defile the outward body, other issues defile the inward or spiritual body. Matthew fifteen seventeen to 20. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. Friends, we must show mercy to believers spreading false teaching. However, we must also be careful not to allow our mercy or compassion to be interpreted as acceptance. As well, we must avoid contact with any impurity, any type of evil deed they may be doing, including false teaching, 
that would contaminate us in the same way we would avoid contact with undergarments stained by human excrement. That's Jude's point. Graphic as it is. My friends, beware of false teaching because it will entangle and entrap you. That's why Galatians 6.1 warns that when restoring sinners, be careful not to fall into the same temptation. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritually restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. We must strike a balance between showing mercy and maintaining purity. And a good standard for keeping this balance is to determine whether the appeal to the false teaching or sin outweighs your hatred for that false teaching or sin. To be honest here, folks, the church today needs to be more ready to restore erring believers than to exclude them. Luke 17, 3-4. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14-15 If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he be put to shame. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You know, too often, believers, we are, and the church too, we are too quick to publicly expose and shame struggling or sinning believers. And supposedly the rationale is that it will serve as an example to others to keep them from committing the same error. But I'm here to tell you that there is nothing in Scripture to support such a response. Now many are very quick to go to Matthew 18. 15 to 19, as the basis for condemning or shunning believers. Let's read the text. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This passage is not about condemning or shunning believers, but rather how to restore them. First, if a fellow believer is sinning, notice the command is to go and show him his fault in private. That's mercy. Not telling everyone about the other believer's sin is mercy. The goal is not to destroy their reputation. That's the point of telling them about it privately. If the believer receives the admonition and repents, then they're immediately restored. There's nothing else to do and no one else to tell. Now, if after going to the sinning believer they re- and they refuse to repent, then, it says... Take one or two more along to confront them. The purpose of other believers is so that every fact may be confirmed in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 19.15, which states, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. 
Taking witnesses is an act of mercy because it safeguards both believers. It, can, it, it safeguards the one confronting and it safeguards the one sinning. It prevents untruthful claims from being made and provides greater <coughs> objectivity into the situation. Two words of caution here when bringing others to confront the sinning believer. First, be up front with them. Tell them who all are coming to meet. And second, only bring along those who are spiritually mature and are known for being discreet. Again, the purpose here is to restore the sinning believer, not to have their issues spread around the church. Such an action would only harm the reputation and therefore hamper the opportunity to restore the individual. If the sinning believer repents, the issue is settled, they're immediately restored back to fellowship. Now, if after confronting the sinning believer with witnesses, they still refuse to repent, then, and only then, do you tell it to the church. And that does not mean calling everybody on the phone. It does not mean standing the individual before the whole church during the weekly service. It refers to gathering together those who have committed themselves to the church to pray for and plead with the sinning believer. Again, this is merciful. It's bringing together the individual spiritual family for the spiritual benefit of the sinning believer. It's to be the desire that such an action would break through and bring them to repentance. And if they repent, guess what? There's immediate restoration. And that should be the cause of praise and celebration before God. Now this final step should only be initiated once the church has done everything possible to bring about repentance and restoration. Only after such an attempt has been rejected is such an individual to be treated as a Gentile tax collector. That term Gentile describes someone who is pagan or unregenerate. A tax collector in the Jewish culture was someone viewed as a traitor to the Jewish people, a loyalist to Rome, and it was treated as an outcast. Therefore, in this final attempt, they are to be treated as a pagan and an outcast, which means they are to be removed from fellowship within the church. But removing them does not mean cutting off all contact with them. Whenever there is contact, it should be viewed as an opportunity to admonish them to repent. And in this final analysis, all genuine believers have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to convict of sin. And therefore, any genuine believer would experience Spirit-led conviction. In turn, genuine believers will repent. And failure to repent demonstrates a lack of genuineness. If after exhausting all means to bring about repentance and restoration and there's still a refusal to repent, then the only thing we can do is believe that the individual is not a genuine believer. But we must exhibit every opportunity to show mercy. Now to those of you who want to quote to me 1 Corinthians 15, 11, which says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler, drunkard, swindler, not to even eat with such one. Let's be clear to establish the context 
that this is a so-called brother. In other words, in 1 Corinthians 15, these so-called brethren have been revealed to be false teachers, to be an apostate masquerading as a believer. So the admonition of 1 Corinthians 15 is against apostates, not genuine believers. Believers, you and I, the church as a whole, needs to show mercy to sinning believers in order to restore them to fellowship and service. And Galatians 6 provides us three steps necessary to facilitate such restoration. Pick them up, hold them up, build them up. Galatians 6.1 is step one. Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. The restoration of a sinning believer is to be handled by those who are spiritual or spiritually mature. And that verb, restore, means to set a bone or mend a net. It conveys the sense of returning something to its former condition. See, the minister, this is the ministry of restoration. And it's to be done in the spirit of gentleness. We're to work to restore our fallen brethren with courtesy and compassion. Because remember, we too could be in that same condition someday. The second step is to hold them up as they struggle to overcome. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. A burden is a heavy weight. Refers to an area of spiritual weakness where temptation strikes. And the process of restoration is not always easy. Because areas of spiritual weakness are often still there. But if the individual is left to themselves to overcome temptation on their own, they're going to fall again and again. Understand, my friends, that freedom from sin is not freedom from temptation. It is necessary for the spiritual mature ones to come alongside and help that brother, to help that sister, deal with the temptations that are going to strike again and again. We call this accountability. And by the way, accountability is more than quoting a scripture verse, Adam. It's being ready to take a call when they're struggling. It's, it's being ready to pray with them at all times. It's helping them develop a plan to overcome the temptation and helping them to ex execute that plan. And by the way, when you do this, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? First, excuse me, John 13.34 says, To love one another. Again, let me give you several warnings here. One... Galatians 6.3 tells us to beware of false comparison. If anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. You know, it, 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 if you're comparing yourself to another believer, you're lying to yourself. Because you're comparing yourself to the wrong standard. Don't look at that sinning believer and say, oh, I'm so much better. And two, beware of falling into spiritual pride. Galatians 6.4 Each one must examine his own work and then he'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not in regard to another. Any victory over sin that you have had in your own life is owed to the grace of God. And a third warning, beware of failing to do your own ministry. Galatians 6.5 Each one will bear his own load. Fortion. The term load or burden there in verse 5, fortion, is distinct from the term burden, barrows, in verse 2. Whereas barrows, burden, refers to a heavy weight, load or fortion refers to a light load. So in the context, the light load is a reference to the believer's routine obligation or service to God. As the spiritually mature engages in the restoring ministry, you cannot neglect your other tasks or ministries. Now, the third step is to build them up 
so they can be restored to fellowship. Galatians 6.6 The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. The one restoring is the teacher and the one being restored is the student. The spiritually mature one is to teach the word of God to build up the repentant believer back to his or her former standing. And in doing so, the now restored believer can share or fellowship in the blessing of God with other spiritually mature ones. Oh, that God would help us to show mercy. Oh, that we would understand and embrace this charge, this duty to show mercy. In an era where everybody's so quick to find fault and point fingers, may the church of God, may you, believer, be an example of someone who first shows mercy, who first takes the steps to rescue and restore the sinning believer. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I pray that you would help us to that end. Help us to be merciful. Help us not to be so quick to jump to conclusions. Help us to not be so quick to find fault, but rather, Lord, to find ways in which we can answer their questions, ways in which we can steer them away from the influence of false teaching. And yes, Lord, even to rescue them, snatch them out of the fire of actually spreading and engaging in false teaching. Help us, Lord, to have an attitude that seeks to rescue and restore our sinning brothers and sisters rather than quickly judging, condemning, and shunning them. Father, help us to remember we have been given mercy. Now our responsibility is to show mercy. Help us to that end, we pray. In your son's precious name. Amen.